This program is brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com. Hi, and welcome to Green Talk, a podcast series from GreenLivingIdeas.com. Green Talk helps listeners in their efforts to lead more eco-friendly lifestyles through interviews with top vendors, authors, and experts from around the world. We discuss the critical issues facing the global environment today, as well as the technologies, products, and practices that you can employ to go greener in every area of your life. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening in today on Green Living Ideas, Green Talk Radio. This is Sean Daly, Editor-in-Chief, and I have with me today Tom Gage, who is the President and CEO of AC Propulsion. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, AC Propulsion, tell us about uh, the company. I know you're involved in the drivetrain systems for electric cars, something I'm personally very interested in, and I know our our listeners are are interested in. So tell us a little bit about the company and your history. Sure. AC Propulsion uh, is actually a veteran now uh, in the electric vehicle field. It was founded in 1992 by Alan Cacconi, who who got his start uh, in EVs, working on the original GM EV program that was called the Impact. That program led in turn to GM's EV1, and it also led to Alan uh, getting the some ideas about electric vehicles and how to commercialize them. The EV1, of course, being the famous car in the movie, Who Killed the Electric Car? That's right. It was uh, a, a really great EV that GM built and then subsequently uh, called back and crushed uh, so that they're no longer available at all. All right. Now, you mentioned the term um, NEV as well, and that's a term that I just recently sort of came across, which is a apparently neighborhood electric vehicle, as opposed to what an EV being more of, is it a distance issue? Well, it's a distance and speed, really speed more than distance. Um, EVs are always going to be um, somewhat range limited compared to a gasoline car, and that's been one of the major uh, knocks against them. But what it turns out is that so much of driving is done locally that in in practical sense the range issue is is not a problem uh, for most people on most days um, and the NEV is even a further recognition that for a lot of driving you don't even need to go uh, at freeway speed and so small EVs um, that are more evolved from golf carts are proving to be very practical in some types of situations uh, Gated communities or even some local downtown areas allow NEVs to be used uh, fruitfully by drivers who, who then uh, save money by having a low-speed car that has local range but still gets them around. And the environmental benefits are significant because uh, for every short trip they take in an NEV, they avoid the cold start emissions from a gas car as well as the, just the overall petroleum consumption. Sure. Now, what would you say would the typical speed range on an NEV? Well, NEVs by regulation are limited to 25 miles an hour. Okay. And they're also limited to travel on roads with a speed limit of no more than 35 miles an hour. Okay. So they are very limited, and uh, they. but what people are finding is that there's still a role for such limited cars because people are finding out, you know, how how slow and local so much of their driving is. And pure EVs, the kind we make, which do have full freeway capability and uh, even better performances in some cases than gas cars, um, 
will evolve from that also. I mean, uh, people will realize that, you know, even if they can't drive to Las Vegas or across the country, um, the EV fits their needs very well. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, I know, I know, you know, most people in most areas of the country will have, you know, your neighborhood market. I mean, sort of the sort of the things you do every day uh, around the home, other than your commute or long distance trips, as you mentioned, you've got going to the, you know, the to the the store to the dry cleaner out for coffee. You know, out for ice cream with the kids and on the weekend or whatever it might be, and and all of that. I mean, I hope for most people like me, it's you know striking distance. It's within a, a couple miles of your home, and those are the applications where it seems like it makes a lot of sense to have a vehicle like this, where you don't need to gun it. You probably shouldn't anyway because your speed limit's probably not too much over 25. Yeah, that's very much the case. Cars, cars are built um, in many cases for situations that people never use, such as big four-wheel drive sport utilities. Yeah. And I think as people understand uh, what's at stake here, the environment and our energy dependence, uh, that it, it'll make sense to start using cars that are better suited to the immediate task. Yeah, and that really that does that requires a, a change of, of thinking um, for for people. You know, I think a lot of this also has to do. This is something we've talked about on the program before. That it has a lot to do with the, the way that our communities are really structured in this country. Um, in, in that, you know, it, it has a lot to do with the design of the community and the roads and where things are built as to the practicality of this. Um, but in a suburban environment, you do generally have a set of commercial services, you know, nearby most residential communities. And, and again, I think that that, you know, that makes it still make sense, even though what would really be ideal is that we could walk to a lot of places. I guess it just depends on where you are. That seems to be more of an urban uh, availability than suburbia, unless you're really lucky. You tend to have to um, get in your car, even though, you know, I know for us to go to our downtown of where we live, you know, that would be quite a walk, and you're not going to do it with the kids because you'll kill them if you right. bring them that far. Right. So, but at least the NEV represents sort of a, a mitigated solution between walking and getting in the gas-guzzling 4x4, as you know, as you were talking about, and, uh, and driving that short distance. That's right. So I'm curious about the e-box. I know this is a product that, that uh, AC Propulsion puts out. Now, and I'm also, I want to sort of get clear on AC Propulsion is a manufacturer of dry systems only, or are you also producing products and selling them uh, directly or producing your own line of vehicles? Uh, pretty much all of the above. We're, our, our core competence, our, our founding reason was to build drive systems for electric vehicles, and, and our drive system has some unique characteristics, but fundamentally it it provides both high efficiency and high performance so that when you have a, an electric vehicle with our drive system, uh, it performs better than a regular car, but is also extremely efficient and convenient to charge. Okay. But over the years, uh, what we've found is that the drive system alone isn't enough, that an, an electric vehicle is a complicated enough device that just having a good drive system isn't enough to to really move EVs into the market. So we've gotten into the business of building electric vehicles, um, both from a ground-up basis and also as conversions of gasoline cars, primarily to demonstrate the capabilities of EVs in general and our drive system in particular. So is it is it more so it's not so much a production car like the E-Box I know is a conversion of the Scion I believe it's the XB five speed that's right um, so would you consider that less of a production vehicle right now or more of a prototype well um, it's a little of both I mean the scale of the auto industry is so immense where if a good factory will turn out a thousand cars a day mm-hmm. and we're building about one E-Box a month right now so by 
car company standards, these are prototypes, but for us, uh, they're products that we're selling to customers and the customers are driving away happy. And I understand that some of those customers include celebrities like Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks was our very first e-box customer, and it turns out he's actually a long-time EV driver. He's been driving a RAV4 EV for many years. And, uh, you know, I think he just does it out of, you know, one, a commitment to uh, improving uh, our situation here on the earth, and two, uh, the fact that he really likes the way they drive. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's good to see that. I think that it's important when, you know, celebrities carry a lot of weight in this country, as we see from news coverage of Paris Hilton versus perhaps other issues. <laughs> so it's important that those who are sort of in the public eye, uh, you know, make those kind of commitments and decisions. It certainly inspires other people. Um, I actually have a quote here from Tom Hanks that, that uh, we had found um just before he drove off with his new e-box, and I believe there's pictures of you handing him the keys on, on your website, uh, Hanks observed that there are th- uh, there are three electric cars sitting on the moon and now another one in my garage. The e-box makes even more sense in Los Angeles than in the Taurus Litro Valley of the moon. Uh, certainly truer words were never spoken uh, in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, you know, I'm sure it makes a lot well, of sense. Well, yeah, it does make a lot more sense. I mean, in, in, on the moon, obviously, it was a necessity because they don't have air to burn, but... Um he had some expertise on that subject, as I found out, I guess, from making the movie Apollo 13. But really, an area like L.A. or the whole L.A. basin, which is maybe a 100-mile a diameter, totally urbanized area, and people, you know, they drive all around it. In many, many cases, the car never leaves the basin for, you know, most of its life or all of its life. And the e-box can serve that whole basin um, based on its range of 120 miles. So... Uh, if you're really in the L.A. basin where air quality is still a huge problem, uh, but you're also concerned about global warming, gas emissions, and petroleum dependency, there's, there's nothing better than an EV. Yeah. Now, I'm curious. One argument that you hear quite often come up with regards to, uh, to EVs is the idea of the battery uh, itself and moving beyond speed or limitations or distance limitations. Distance limitations is one of the things you hear, and I know that there are companies that are out there pushing, depend on the, depending on the model, 250 miles or even more. Um, but uh, one of the complaints you hear or challenges to the technology is, um, well, you're helping the environment in one way, but you're, you're poisoning it in another in that the batteries have this lifetime on them, and then when they're, di- when they're dead, they're very toxic and they go back into the environment. Right. What's your viewpoint on that? Well, that's that's true of pretty much every manufactured good is it has a life cycle and then um, it has to be disposed of. And the auto companies in general worldwide, but I think particularly in Europe and in this country to some degree, are on the forefront of, of recycling because the automobile production and to start with and then the scrappage down the road um, represents such a huge amount of material just because the industry is so big. So in Europe, they're 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 starting to in, to implement uh, full recycling, where the entire car has to be recycled. And in this country, for example, the the starter batteries that are already in cars are recycled to an, an extremely high degree. I think it's well into the ninety percent, maybe even ninety five percent. They take the lead from the battery and the the plastic from the battery and even the acid from the battery and recycle that. Um, there's no reason why EV batteries would be any different. Different, in fact, they would probably be more highly recycled because they represent a very large uh, piece of, of hardware. And unlike a starter battery, it's not something you can throw over the fence into the creek. It, you know, it's too big. So every EV battery that's removed from a car will have to be disposed of. 
and because they'll be disposed of by either dealers or service shops who will be regulated, that uh, it, it's a very safe bet that the entire battery will be recycled. And they aren't toxic in the conventional sense. Uh, I mean, they're not materials that you necessarily want to return to a landfill um, unrecycled, but they aren't uh, they aren't poisonous or yeah. toxic. And I guess that's really what I should have yeah, It's more of a, a landfill issue. It's something you don't want leaching into the soil. You, you don't, and I, I don't really think that's going to be an issue. It, the economics of it remain to be seen. In some cases, batteries have enough um, residual value in the, in, the, in the raw materials that they have positive value, but in most cases, it's safe to assume that it will be a, a cost that has to be either paid at the time of recycling or uh, paid at the time of the battery is first purchased, and that whole model is still being developed. So. And that and that really, I think, is hits the nail on the head. Your last point, which is that 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 is what that's the difference between. I mean, it's one of the major differences between, for example, you use the example of the European market versus the U.S. market. It's you know people point, and I think incorrectly, to the product itself. Uh, oh well, you know that's bad because you've got a battery in there that's big. Well, I mean, there's going to be something in there. There's going to be some manufacturing materials, and in many cases, there are going to be issues with dumping it, whatever it is, in a landfill. What we're missing and we really need is the systems, the support systems in the country to, to recycle these, you know, places where it's very easy for, whether it's the consumer or the dealership, to return the materials and just the entire industry and process behind that. that that's, I think, really what we're missing. Yeah, that, that's true. And, and, you know, whether it's, for the most part, you don't want it to landfill, whether it's toxic or not. And one of my pet peeves, of course, is plastic water bottles, which, you know, you don't even need at all because you've got water coming free out of the tap. That's right. But uh, the end result is we've put a lot of water bottles in the landfill. Yeah, you know, it's true. And I mean, but plastic being a petroleum based product and, you know, just that the, the idea of that consumable, disposable thing, people, yeah, you make you make a good point. It's, you know, off topic, but worth, worth talking about, which is that there are other options for something like that where you're not creating this, this mass of, of a mess of creating all these plastic water bottles. You know, you can do something like, um, Getting that there's and also the toxicity issues around something like right. that. You know that, that that most plastic water bottles do do leach, um, you know, harmful contaminants into the water that uh-huh. will cause you know health problems, and that's been proven. So you can do something like a lined aluminum bottle. Aluminum, I know it sounds like heavy metals, but you know, like the Sig bottles from Switzerland that are lined aluminum and um, you know are much healthier, and you carry that around with you. But it, it requires that change of thinking. That's right. So tell us about vehicle to grid. What's that all about? Well, that's a pretty exciting concept, um, and it it uh, it can lead to very dense um, discussions because it's a complicated concept. But the basic idea is that up to now, there's never been any way to economically have a an energy buffer on the power grid, and you would an energy buffer is desirable because every time you turn on a light switch, you need a little more energy, and then you turn it off, and you need a little less. And yet the energy comes from these giant generating stations that don't really respond to small changes very well. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole uh, business and profession of controlling the grid and matching supply and demand on an hourly, daily, hourly, and even minute-by-minute basis. Um, and these these professionals who operate the grid, called uh, in California it's called the independent system operator, um, they spend a lot of money and time uh, making sure that the grid is reliable and stable. And one thing they would all like to have, if they could, um, is a way to store a little energy here 
and then put a little more energy out on the grid there when they need it. And they've done this over the years with various methods like pumping water uphill behind a dam and then letting it drain back through the generator. Um, and, and those systems work, but the advent of the electric car uh, now creates a new opportunity. And that opportunity is that a car has a battery and a very sophisticated power electronic system that's very efficient. And that car is parked on average 23 hours a day. And not only is it parked, but it can be plugged into the grid. So all of a sudden you've got this new asset, basically an electric car, and the asset value is dedicated or allocated to transportation, and yet it's available uh, most of the time during the day. So if you can create a system whereby that car can be remotely controlled by the grid operator, there may be opportunities for the grid operator to control not just one car, but tens of thousands of cars and thereby create what I call a battery on the grid. So I see. So this is sort of that um, uh, not in Mission Impossible, the other Tom Cruise movie, that, whose name, which name, the name of which escapes me at the moment, but this idea of uh, automated control from the grid of the vehicles? That's right. The vehicle would be plugged in while it's parked at the curb, and it would have some sort of a wireless connection, cell phone or Wi-Fi or any number of things. They're still working on what, what makes the most sense. But there would be an entity we call an aggregator who, who controls maybe 100 or 1,000 cars at a time. And the aggregator responds to a command from the grid operator. And then the aggregator sends that command out to the individual cars that are being controlled. And the car says, I'm going to take a little more electricity from the grid, or I'm going to take a little less, or I'm even going to put some electricity back onto the grid from the battery on the car. Mm-hmm. And all of these transactions are very small. And the effect on the car's battery is very small. The battery never really gets charged or discharged to a significant degree because these energy transactions are so small. But by the end of the day, the value of having that car available and responding to the commands is quite significant. Uh, the value can amount to something like 5 or $10 a day for the, the car owner. And you can see that, that that equates pretty closely to what the whole car payment might be over the course of a month. That's fascinating. So, I mean, how far off would you say, and I mean, your wildest imagination, uh, something like that coming to fruition in the marketplace? Well, I think it'll be evolutionary, and I think it will track closely the the commercialization of plug-in cars, both plug-in hybrids and pure EVs, and that's going to play out over the next 10 to 20 years. And that really leads me to my my last question for you, which is the most important: is we've got we've got some great technology now. I mean, electric cars are, are already here. Obviously, there's going to be improvements, but we've got everything from the neighborhood electric vehicles, the smaller vehicles that are very practical, to to the you know we've, we're seeing the sports cars now from companies like Tesla, who I understand you guys make the drivetrain in that. Well, we license our technology. They, they make their own drive systems. You, okay, so you license your technology. Uh-huh. We've got the Lightning Car Company over in the UK. Um, so we've got you know the high end and the low end and things in the middle. Wh- what is missing now? Wh- what does it take to move this to the next uh, level so that we can see more electric cars on the market? Well, I I think it's going to happen. You know, our goal, and and it's playing out, is to make a car that people want to drive, and people who do drive our cars uh, really like it, and it becomes something they aspire to. Now, the e-box is too expensive for most people. It's about 70000 bucks, But as the volume goes up, the price will come down. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, the price will always perhaps suffer in comparison to a conventional car, at least 
you know, in the foreseeable future, just because uh, car makers have built over a billion conventional cars over the last hundred years or so, and they're very, very good at it, and they can do it very cheaply. Um, it's very hard for a new product to compete against that, especially when it's uh, many of its major benefits aren't really properly priced in the market. That is the environmental benefits. So, what I like to say, and, and you know, everybody hates me for saying this, but the best way to get EVs on the road is to start taxing gasoline about three or four bucks a gallon. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. No, it's. I mean, it is. It's <laughs> that will definitely make people uh, move towards that market uh, because and, you know, the car companies aren't even against it. I mean, they they might say they are, but they understand that they can make money on small cars if people want to buy small cars. And one way to get people who want to want to buy small cars is to make gas a lot more expensive. Yeah. And a lot of people will say that'll lead the country into ruin. Well, we're on that path already if we don't start curtailing our gasoline usage. And unless you make it uncomfortable for people, they're not going to move because they're just going to sort of achieve the, the you know the homeo or industri- the industrial equivalent of homeostasis and not not moving. They won't move. It's sort and, of comfortable and, you know, where they are. The government doesn't tax gas to seven bucks a gallon. Um, other events will probably raise the price anyway, and so that money will go to the oil companies instead of the government. So right. It's going to happen one way or the other. It's a question of whether we're proactive about it. Well, so for you, so it seems like it's still the world of the early adopters now. Um, I know there are, there are a number of companies in this market. It's good to see. We, we, we hope to see more advancements in the future, uh, and the price the price is continuing to come down. But for those of you out there listening who can't afford an electric vehicle, there are companies uh, you know, like AC Propulsion and, and Zap and Tesla and these other cars that are out there that are producing these vehicles now. So go go out and check them out. And uh, if you can be an early adopter, be so because that's how it starts. It's a it's a grassroots thing, and um, you know, and there are financial benefits as well, and certainly benefits to the the planet and the environment. My guest today has been Tom Gage, who is the president and CEO of AC Propulsion. Tom, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you on the program with us today. Thank you very much, Sean. Thanks as always to everyone listening in today. Remember, for more free on-demand podcasts, articles, videos, and other information related to living a greener lifestyle, visit our website at www.greenlivingideas.com. We'd also love to hear your comments, feedback, and questions. Send us an email at editors at greenlivingideas.com. Find more great shows like this on personallifemedia.com.